0: I pray this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So it feels much better to be in real clothes. Um, I don't do well in a suit, but I look good though. I, look good. I do. I do. And and. And those of you who had to take a picture because it was almost like the eighth wonder of the world, um, if I see him on Facebook, man, there's going to be trouble. All right. So a few weeks ago, before we were able to celebrate with John and Melissa last week, uh, we talked about uh, this invitation that God gives us to enter into rest. That uh, God's desire for his people is this deep down no matter what rest, that, that only comes from being in this relationship with him. And we kinda looked in the Old Testament story of how Israel got to the promised land. God said, I've given, I'm giving you this, this, this land, this land flowing with milk and honey, and they went, mm, there's, there's giants in there, and so we're out, and they, and they missed the rest. But we can trust the word of God. We can trust the word of God as he invites us into that place of intimacy, of peace, and of rest. Because the word is not just the Bible, but in John chapter one, it said that the word was with God, and the word is God. And so the word of God is Jesus himself, and we can trust the work of Christ on the cross for our forgiveness. We can trust the work of Christ on the cross for our sanctification, that we've been justified. And when we can start to press into that with all our heart and soul, that's where we find our peace. That's where we find that deep down, it doesn't matter what life throws at me, peace. And now as we're gonna finish up chapter four, the the author, as he kind of unpacked that whole thing for this little church, he wants to give them some some concrete footings that they can just stand up firm on about who they are, about the direction that they're moving. He wants to give the church something that they can hold on to during the storm that they're in. And so I want to spend some time unpacking the last, I believe it's five verses of Hebrews chapter 4. So Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this, "'For the word of God is alive and active, "'sharper than any double-edged sword,' It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So there is something about the word of God, even beyond the idea of Jesus. There's something about this this word here, this, this collection of, of stories and history and poetry and letters and gospels, they're not just letters written on a page to create words that create sentences that are kind of ordered in a right way that create paragraphs that have created this book. There's something much deeper to, to these pages than, than, just, than just words on a page. The scripture tells us that the word of God is alive, the word of God is, is active. will never just be words that sit idle here, but there's, this, there's movement to it. There's life to these words, and, and it gives life beyond flesh and blood life, but, but soul life, emotional life, heart life. Isaiah would write that, that, that the word of God, when it goes out, it will never come back void. And so there's something living about that, that God sends this, this word out into the world, and it will never come back Void, Because it will always do what God wills it to do. It's always there to meet his purpose, the divine revelation of who he is. And the, and the scripture says that it, that it penetrates, which is, it's just this very poetic description of just how deep the word of God can actually go that it can penetrate deep into the heart and the soul of a person, regardless of personality, regardless of where you've been, where you're going, where you are now, this word, these words of God here can penetrate deep into the heart and the soul. It It can separate it. The word convicts, and the word can bring comfort. The word can soften. The word can encourage. The word can tear down strongholds and and the Word can build up a person in Christ. And what's interesting is, he has written this letter, and he's talking about how the Word of God is alive and active. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, thousands of years later, we have this as the Word of God, and it's still alive, and it's still active. And he pushes a little bit deeper now in verse 13. It says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That one verse alone for many people could bring some tension into their life. But I want to tell you this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, this that verse should be a verse of comfort and confidence. You know, there are people in this world that believe, and there's always been people that believe that if they don't believe in the Bible, then the Bible doesn't really matter to them. They believe that, I don't believe that, so it really doesn't matter. Like, the scripture is only for Christians. But that's not the case. You see, the truth of God is truth. It's always truth, and it, will, and it is for all people. Whether you believe or not, whether you want to agree with it or disagree, this truth is truth for the entire human population, for all of humanity, past, present, and future. And as, as he unpacks this verse of nothing in all God's creation is hidden from his sight, nothing, nothing, that means he sees everything. There is absolutely nothing that can be kept hidden from God, nothing in, deep in our heart, deep in our soul, deep in our past, nothing. It's all laid bare. I love the way A.W. Tozer, uh, he, he writes about it in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, which I would recommend to everyone. I've read it once. I'm on my second time reading it in about 20 years because it's that deep. But he says this about that. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires. Every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible, in heaven and on earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything he is never surprised. He's never amazed. He never wonders about anything. Nor, except when drawing men out of their own good, out for their own good, does he seek information or ask questions. God knows all things. There is no hiding from Him at all. And I know that sometimes you just go, oh, like you thought you can hide from God. You thought that if you kept that thing a secret that he wouldn't know. But as a follower of Christ, you can bet upon this. That within this all-knowing of God, within him knowing past, present, and future, within him knowing all of the good that we've done, all of the oopses that we've committed, all of the horrible things that we've done, He knows the the weight of it. He knows the weight of consequence of it. He knows the consequence of it in our lives. He knows the consequence of it in other people's lives, how they've suffered because of us. He knows those deep inner thoughts that we would never share with even our most trusted friends and family because we don't want anyone to know God knows those things. And within that knowledge, you can bet your life that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are Loved. Because of your faith in Christ and the cross, you are forgiven. Past, present, future. You now are the righteousness of Christ. When God looks upon you, Christian, he sees his perfected Son. And not our weakness and our shortcomings and our brokenness. And rest assured, we will give account to him. But this is this this I've seen this taken out of context all too often. This giving an account. And again, it feels like this, this weight upon us. Oh my goodness, I need to put more good chips into my good boy jar than, and have less bad chips in my bad boy jar. And so there's this constant teetering or striving or trying or feeling guilty or condemned because we're gonna give an account one day before God. In Romans chapter two, it says that those who buy persistence, not perfection, Those who by persistence persist in doing good. Those who have been following Jesus, they're being renewed, they put their faith in him, and because of that transformation, that taking place, they are persistent in pressing in to doing good. They will have eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and reject the truth, who is Christ, there will be wrath and there will be anger. See, the account that we will give on the day of judgment is as simple as this. Have you accepted the gift of my son or have you not accepted the gift of my son? Have you accepted my gift of grace or you, have you rejected my gift of grace? That's the account that we will give. Because we are no longer under his wrath because of the cross. It was poured out upon Christ. And so within these two verses, the writer of Hebrews, he's, he's encouraging this church of who they are, of, of the gift that's been given to them. These, these firm foundations that they can stand upon. and he's also, he's also revealing to them, unpacking for them, the idea of the fate of those who, who reject Jesus as Messiah. Because this church is under persecution and they, they wants to make sure that this church knows that God is seeing all of this suffering. God is seeing these people who are coming after them, who are persecuting them, who are hurting them. That nothing, nothing is outside of God's realm of knowing. And within that truth, within that that somber truth of they will stand before God, it's still God's heart that all would come to faith. It's still God's heart that the people that are persecuting this little church would come to put their faith in his son and know salvation. I think the only thing I can think of is, is God's desire in his heart that Uh, the people of Isis would come to know his son, Jesus Christ. See, that's scandalous grace. That's messy, I don't get it, sometimes I don't like it, grace. But that is who God is. That is his desire, that none would perish. And so as he tells this church, hey listen, God's got this, and they will give an account, but his heart is still wanting those people to repent and follow his son. And so he kind of finishes up this, and then he, he launches into a little bit of who Jesus is. In verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we pro- profess." For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So before we kind of work through this, I'd like to set up a little bit and briefly lay out the idea of this this great high priest, or the high priest. Remember, this is a, a letter written to a group of Jewish men and women who have now left the traditions of Judaism and have put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. And in their old faith tradition, the high priest had a very sacred, very important, very holy job. He, would, he was a very big deal in that, in that culture, a very big deal, because he would bring the entire sin of the nation before God to seek God's forgiveness, which is no small feat. And so the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he would enter into the Holy of Holies, the the most sacred, holy place that a Jewish person could enter into. And there he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, As an act of atonement for the entire nation, but it was an act of symbolism for the forgiveness of their sin. And I wish I could unpack that a little bit more, but I really don't have the time, so we're just gonna leave it there. So he was making atonement for the entire nation. He would have to make this sacrifice for himself, for his own sin. He only stayed in there as long as it took for him to carry out the work. The Holy of Holies was not a place that you just kind of hung around and kicked back and put your feet up in. This was the presence of God was there. In fact, it was such a sacred, holy, and dangerous job that they would put bells around his robe and so they could hear him when he was in there. And and the the idea was, if if they didn't hear this ringing anymore, that there was a good possibility that God had killed him or he had died in his service. And then they would have to pull him out by the rope that was wrapped around his waist because no one dared go in there except the high priest and on one day a year. And so the author now is calling the attention of this church to something they know very well. And he's saying now, wait now, see we have this great high priest, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who who has ascended into heaven our high priests, and he has made the once and forever sacrifice for sin. It's no longer just symbolic. It is real. It is lasting. It is forever. He went to the cross, was crucified, died, was buried, and he rose again. He is our atonement, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. You see, a high priest would never sit in the Holy of Holies because his work was never completed. He'd have to return year after year after year. But Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father because the office of high priest has been completed. The work of atonement, the work of our forgiveness for our sin is now finished and he intercedes for us. And he prays for us. He prays strength for us. He prays that the spirit of God would reveal the truth of who God is more and more and more. And by the time we get to the end of verse 14, it says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. He's telling the church, don't, don't go back to the old way of doing things. Don't go back to trying to do it on your own or trying to put human standards around it. Hold tight to this faith that we profess. Because when hard times come, and they will, hard times come for all humanity. And when, when, you, feel like, when you feel like life has used you as its own personal punching bag, Hold firm to the faith that you profess. And I would even say, profess your faith. Speak it out loud. Speak it out. There's there's life in our words. Speak it, profess it. Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my forgiveness. He is my righteousness. Speak those words. Make it a public declaration. Even if it's not cool, even if it's politically incorrect this day and age, profess the faith that we have because in our words there is life and there is light and the world is dark and dying and needs to hear our faith. Profess, hold firmly to that faith that we speak Private conviction is very important, that that, that, deep down holding on to these truths. But man, when we speak words, we can speak life into any situation. Hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who was ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, Weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. During this time, there are different philosophies of life and religion. Uh, there's this group called the Stoics, and what they believed was that the gods or God, however you kind of fell into the realm of what you believed, but they, they had no real passion for people. They didn't experience any emotions. They were just kind of monotone and flat. And then you had the Epicureans who just believed that, that the, almost, almost in a deist mentality where the gods kind of spun the earth, and then they just kind of walk away, and they're in this, this they're not really involved, but they're not really uninvolved. They're in this kind of limbo place, But this is a very new and radical idea that God himself was so involved that he entered into our time, our space, that he entered into our human condition for our own good. He's entered into our suffering. And and this is just completely off the rail from what they were used to hearing, even in their own faith tradition of Judaism. God, yes, was involved, but not, not this intimate human way of understanding and empathizing. Remember chapter two of Hebrews, he said that, that Jesus was made in our likeness in every way. Jesus was made in our likeness in every way. So he was born into this world and he put all of the God stuff under the authority and the will of the Father. So he put the all-knowing under the will of the Father. He put the all-powerful under the will of the Father. He put the all-presence under the will of the Father. And as a human being, he was sinless. He did not sin. He was born human, mind, body, emotions, all the weakness that comes with that. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to write. He had to learn to talk. He was a baby before he was a teenager, before he was a man. He matured emotionally. He matured intellectually, just like we do. He went through all of the things that we go through on that very everyday, Monday, mundane life level. And this is why our high priest can empathize with us. Empathy, it's about this mutual experience. Our high priest can empathize with us. He ascended into heaven in the body, not as a spirit, And some would say they call it his priestly body, his glorified body. He ascended into heaven. And as we experience the weakness of this flesh, the weakness of of our ups and our downs and our struggles and our failures, Jesus resonates with that because he knows what we go through he knows what it's like. He is present with God the Father in this bodily form. He understands us, yet he is fully God. It is a beautiful mystery of our faith. But there is no human experience, there is no human emotion that Jesus cannot empathize with. Nothing that you can go through would be something that Jesus says, well, I just, I don't, I don't get that he knows and it says in every way he was tempted just as we are tempted but he did not sin he did not give in Jesus the human being fully human fully God puts the God part away fully human does not sin did not give in to temptation now I want to be clear about this idea that he is tempted in every way it wasn't like Jesus was tempted to Okay, say like, like he, he's got two years on his iPhone 6 plan and now he's really tempted just to spring the 700 bucks and buy the 6S because he really wants it but he can't afford it. He wasn't tempted with like our everyday things that we're tempted with. This is about human nature. This is about things like lust and greed and envy and jealousy and, and selfishness. Jesus was tempted with those things and those things within our hearts If we give them life, if we give them license, they will will manifest themselves in the way we live. Jesus was not, he was tempted, but he did not give in to those temptations. The stakes were very high for him. He stood firm. He stood firm in the Father. You don't don't know how hard or strong temptation is unless you, you can withstand it. Unless you stand against it, those who resist the weight and the pain of it, standing up to it, know Jesus did it perfectly. It's like you don't know how strong the wind is blowing unless you walk into the wind. But to walk with the wind, you you give in, and it doesn't seem that heavy, or that hard, or that strong. It's easy to give in, but to withstand can wear you down, and it can tire you out. Jesus didn't give in. Jesus never gave up. He never sinned, and so he knows what we go through. He knows the the, the depth of the pain and the suffering that we go through when the enemy comes at us and tempts us with all of the things that he tempts us with every day. Jesus knows, and in that he loves and in that, he's full of grace. He knows like no other person can. He just doesn't imagine how it must feel. Jesus feels it. He has felt it, and he feels it with us. And then finally, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What an amazing invitation that we would approach God's throne of grace with, with confidence. The word confidence there has a very interesting meaning. Uh, it it kind of means a free and open speech between the citizens. And so the invitation is that we get to come before God's throne freely, openly, openly, speaking what's on our heart, what's in our heart, what's on our mind. The throne, the idea of throne is a, is a picture of power and authority, but yet it's his throne of grace. It's his throne of unmerited favor. This is where we're invited to, invited to his throne of grace. And there, when we get there, when we come before him, that's where mercy is. That's where his grace is kind of dispensed to us, freely. Openly, we receive the mercy for all of our past failures, whether they be yesterday or whether they be 10 years ago. We receive grace to meet our present needs, our our future needs. We are offered the full heart of God. The full heart of God. And as he enters in and and as he meets us where we are in our brokenness and our failings and our oopses and our stumblings and even our sin, as he meets us there, Before that throne, he heals. And he heals. Warmly, lovingly, he heals us. And we receive this unmerited favor of the Lord. Not because of what we're doing, not because of who we're trying to be, but because we have simply said, I receive your grace. I receive Jesus. I put my faith in him. All of this at our most urgent time of need. You know, I find some tension in that time of need thing because um, many times I think that God needs to pour out a little mercy, a little grace when I need it. And I'm pretty sure I know when I need it the most. <laughs> but God knows way more than I know. And when I need it, when I am just, when, I, when he has taken me down that road to say, are you finished looking at the gift Now look to me, the giver. He pours it out upon me. That's his desire for his church. That's his desire for his people, that we would pray in that confidence. Don't neglect what God is so willing to give by hiding or running. Because just by a simple childlike faith, you can approach him with confidence. Maybe for some, you don't have that confidence in God like that. Maybe you wrestle with, I don't know, past, present, you're worried about the future, God's been quiet. Approach the throne of grace and Confidence. There's gonna be some people up here that wanna pray for you, with you. If, if your heart has been kinda of churning with whatever I've said, maybe, <laughs> maybe you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet. I don't know. You're just kicking the tires. Some people that wanna pray with you. Approach that throne. Father, I wanna thank you that you pour this love out upon us And his name is Jesus Christ. Now I pray that you would continue to do the work that you've begun in each and every person here. Amen. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. I'll see you next week. Again, please. Prayer.